dear listeners, welcome back to Alphib Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hochili in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and I am here with not literally in the same room, but uh, Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK. Hello. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah. Such yeah. great enthusiasm. So in our last episode, oh. we talked about, uh, well, a bit at the beginning, and there's a Patreons episode about Afghanistan. Uh, and it's amazing that uh, since the fall of Kabul, um, a lot of the fallout from it has continued. I, I mean, kind of I've been noticing the amount of people who've been calling for the, the US and Western powers to go back in, basically. I mean, what, Phil? It's been remarkable. I mean, the whole thing is remarkable, right? The um, the rapidity of the collapse. I suppose what strikes me more is that, that it's even less response, you know, the irresponsibility is so great that what I see more is, isn't calls to go back in. So I, I don't know if you have anyone in mind in particular, Alex, but the kind of things that I see is we can't forget, Af, you know, Afghan women and children. We need to make sure that we prioritize Afghan women and children. These kinds of utterly vacuous and empty statements, because on the one hand, they want to kind of... Um, posture morally they want to kind of um convey their sense of moral seriousness and integrity but without being willing to do anything politically about it because you know they know particularly yeah. european politicians know that they can't do anything without the us the us is unwilling to do anything nobody really wants to take responsibility for invading afghanistan again and so they throw out these utterly empty rhetorical commitments and it's really it's repulsive to see yeah, and it, I think it like has to be recognized that everything is suboptimal. No one's claiming that leaving Afghanistan is will lead to a positive outcome, right? Like the Taliban are terrible, backwards, reactionary goat fuckers. And that is that racist? Maybe I shouldn't say that. Anyway, um, they, they, they do not. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. Anyway, the point is, is that it's been an injustice since the start and a wrong since the start. And ultimately, decisive action has to be taken at some point to leave. It's never going to be good because the US has failed to set up even a minimally functioning state there and one which isn't completely kleptocratic and corrupt. And the crazy thing is, is that they've had obviously enough of a chance to it. And even me as an anti, you know, anti-interventionist, um, an anti-imperialist would say that actually uh, a, a U.S., you know, a U.S. friendly client state set up in Afghanistan, which was minimally functional and had a bit of order and a bit of democracy would be an improvement for Afghanistan. Right. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought I thought you were going to say that when somebody think of the um, Afghanistani goats um, and prioritize <laughs> them. But uh, no, I mean, yeah, it's been it's been. But should we be surprised? I mean, by this this sort no, of indeed, um, political right. intervention, it's it's indeed. it's part of the course. We we well, maybe if this had happened prior to twenty sixteen, we might have been surprised. But we these people yeah. have uh, have form in in this kind of response to to <laughs> political events. I guess yeah. so. I'd say what I'd say one thing about it, which is that it is you know it's Trump essentially. Yeah. Um, and there's no getting around that. So the fact, you know, the, why did this, uh, you know, so we've asked the question, why did the American client state collapse so much more quickly than the Soviet client state after the withdrawal of the Soviets in 1989? But another question is, why did this not happen after the end of Iraq? You know, after the US withdrew from Iraq, why did they, why did we not see a similar kind of retreat? And the reason is because nobody, there was no domestic contestation. So I think there was, there's no calamity 
um, there's no calamity, human catastrophe or calamity that is large and grisly enough to stop the human rights, state building, NGO, peacekeeping, NATO caravan from rolling on. They would have moved on to the next disaster zone quite yeah, happily and, without any accountability. And Afghanistan, thing, and Afghanistan still had that vestige of like legitimacy because of 9-11 yeah. in a way that Iraq obviously never did. The, yes, exactly. The only thing that made the difference was um, was essentially Donald Trump. The fact that he kind of mobilized um, his populist coalition that included disgruntled vets and um, working class supporters. But also he just asked a very basic question, which is what is our interest? And this is something that all these apolitical liberals that have been driving U.S. hegemony for the last 20 years, they have no answer to. You know, the very basic, why are we there beyond kind of vacuous, empty rhetoric? They have no answer to the question of what is the political interest? And so he disintegrated the imperial coalition, you know, with um, kind of the um, with the bluntest kind of weapons in a way, you know, very mm. basic questions. So, these, I, I mean, these, I'd stress that. Yeah, these apolitical liberals, all they have is like resort to like pat phrases like you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. I mean, that's the only justification that they have oh, for um, for intervention, and that's just terrible. That's George. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, quite. Anyway, um, but it, I think it's also the fact, and another yet more evidence here that uh, Biden is just Trumpism done well, right? Um, and I think I think maybe it might be worth well, also just done exploring. better. Let's not say done well, done better. No, right. No, fair enough. Yeah, done better. Um, and done uh, with less fuss, I guess, you know, like less, less, less fireworks. Um More efficiently. But what's amazing is also just what an imperial failure this is. I don't know, I don't think, and Phil, I mean, obviously you follow this much more closely, but you know, whether this marks the end of these kind of humanitarian adventures and whether this is kind of the ending of another aspect of the end of history. Um, it doesn't look like it has much legs in it, but it's also... It definitely is another end of, end of history moment. I mean, you can see that people losing their minds over it in the same kind of hysterical way. And the, the inability to explain the nostalgia for an immediate past, which was already gone. I mean, the Taliban had already overrun the country, you know, so they were sitting in their hipster cafes in Kabul, these journalists dreaming of, you know, like this wonderful paradise of women's rights and NGO rule, which extended to the like the border, you know, the suburbs of the city. Yeah. And I think whatever deficiencies the anti-war movement had, it's been proven absolutely correct. And even if you wanted to look at this from the point of view of the American empire, like it's, it's amazing what a disaster it's made of it because now um, Afghanistan will most likely, the Taliban run Afghanistan will um, be quite pally with China. Right. And I mean, Phil, you, I saw you suggesting, and I think other people have suggested this as well, that the, the, the U.S.'s response to this might be to bring back the Mujahideen and maybe even use them to kind of try to destabilize neighboring China. I mean, yeah, I mean, why not? You know, I mean, so they're using, they arm jihadis in Syria. So the Pino kind of, um, and they were happy to kind of uh, use Al Qaeda against the Ba'athist regime in Syria. So why not use jihadis and revive a kind of Al-Qaeda network in order to undermine the Taliban as Chinese allies and to use Afghanistan as a rear base for attacks in Xinjiang? You know, I mean, given the kind of the weird dialectic between the US empire and jihadism, it's, you know, stranger things have happened. I could see that happening again. Yeah, and for all that, uh, I mean, if Biden is a continuation of Trumpism, um, then uh, then the, the one kind of uh, glitch to that is that, of course, uh, a lot of this is all just helping China. So from the point of uh, American imperial strategy, it's amazing what a what an absolute disaster it is, as well as being, you know, the obvious human disaster. 
Speaking of human disasters, uh, we're not going to be talking about Afghanistan here today. We're going to be talking about lockdowns. Uh, and I'm not going to say very much more about that because I'm going to pass over to Phil, uh, who interviewed Alex Gutentag about uh, lockdowns and her opposition to them a few days ago. And you're going to hear this recording now before we all come back in and uh, discuss what we've heard. So over to Phil. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alex. Um, Alex Gutentag is known on the internet, I suppose, and on Twitter for her vocal and articulate and very impassioned criticisms of lockdown. And she's written some wonderful articles in The Bellows and in The Tablet magazine. And you can find those articles in the show notes, and I'd encourage you to read them. And we have Alex on the show today to talk a bit more about lockdown and criticism of lockdown and how the criticism can be justified and what alternatives there are, if indeed there are any. Um, but before we get into that, Alex, if you can set the scene for us a bit about um, who you are and your background, um, just to help us understand where you're coming from when you approach lockdown. So um, where are you from and where are you based? Um, well, thanks so much for having me, uh, first of all. And um, I'm based in Oakland, California for now. Um, I'm also from Oakland, California. Um, I've been a public school teacher since 2013. And um, I've primarily taught in low income. Well, I've only taught in low income schools, actually. Right. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, a lot of the lockdown criticism has obviously been coming from the right. And that wasn't really my background getting into it. So how old are the kids that you, that you teach and what do you teach them? Um, I've been teaching middle school special education. Right. So what does that mean just for our non-American listeners? Um, well, it depends on the setting. There's different settings for special ed. But what I've primarily taught the past few years is a self-contained class of students with various disabilities between sixth and eighth grade. Right. Okay. And when you say um, low income, that means... Um, uh, ethnic minorities, um, kids with working class parents. Is that the kind, is that the picture? Yeah. And a lot of times in the U S we'll kind of classify schools based on who's eligible for free and reduced lunch. Right. So, um, we'll say the school is 98% free or reduced lunch. That kind of gives you a picture a lot of times of the income levels of the families. Right. And we'll talk a bit more about, um, the experience of teaching in lockdown, because I think that will be, um, that's been obviously one of the most um, difficult and trying aspects of lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, and we can talk a bit about that. But you mentioned, so I mean, most lockdown criticism is associated with the libertarian right. And you said that you're um, not right wing yourself. You don't see yourself like that. Could you tell us a bit about what your political background is and how you characterize yourself politically? Yeah, so I think before the lockdown, I wasn't super politically active. I supported Bernie Sanders and I canvassed for Bernie. Um, and then I also was... And was that in 2019 as well? Yeah. yeah. The, the other political activity I had was being a union rep in the teachers union right. um, for a few years. And we also, during the time I was a union rep, we went on strike in my district. And since I was a rep at the school, I had to help organize that at the school level. Um, and that was my political background going into the lockdown. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't really say that any of my kind of values or beliefs have changed, but obviously I'm not aligned with the kind of main 
thrust of the U.S. left's position yeah. on lockdown or school closures. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've touched upon it already, but maybe could you talk a bit about the as a teacher about the experience of lockdown. So from outside the States, um, it can often be a confusing picture for observers from outside, such as myself in the UK, because there seem to be, there seem to be a significant variation in terms of um, different policies in different states, which was again then separate from the federal government. And it depended very much whether it was a blue or a red state. So could you maybe just talk us through what happened with the lockdown in Oakland and what your kind of professional experience was during the lockdown? Yeah, so starting, I think it was March 13th or so, um, the night before was kind of the first time that I realized the schools might close. And then um, it was announced over the intercom the next day that there was a deadly virus and so school was going to be closed for two weeks. Um and then after that two weeks, it turned into another couple of months, then the full school year. Um, and then schools were closed for over a year in most places in California. So the experience in the beginning was very chaotic because there was no plan going into it for online learning. What it meant was that a lot of kids didn't have access to school at all, basically because they didn't have computers at home and because they didn't have internet. So yeah. after the first couple of weeks, we did distribute computers from the schools, but a lot of kids didn't have Wi-Fi at home. It wasn't until fall 2020 that we were able to get them hotspots and a lot of tech companies or tech CEOs donated those hotspots so that kids right. could do online school. Um, but in the spring 2020, we had huge percent of kids who just could not have any access for the last two or three months of school because of lack of internet. While meanwhile, their affluent peers were able to use Zoom, do classwork online, uh, things like that. Yeah. So going into fall 2020, there was more effort to make it more organized. So at least there was access for kids. But I think it's really important to note that even when kids had access, uh, depending on the age, their instructional time was still essentially cut in half. And the pace at which teachers can go through material online is also a lot slower because teachers haven't been trained that way. Yeah. And also just because there's missing you're missing crucial elements that you have in person, yeah. just like an ability to look over a kid's shoulder all the time. Yeah. It's very different online in terms of the way you can kind of track their progress or check for understanding. It's more labor intensive and takes more time. Yeah. So I say, depending on the situation, most kids probably got a third to a sixth of the curriculum that they would normally have gotten. Yeah. Um, on top of missing out all of their social opportunities, ability to learn from each other, yeah. Um, and it's very common for in the U.S. for underserved um, populations and communities for kids to be one year behind, two years behind, sometimes three or four years behind, especially by the time they get to middle school or high school. Um, and this is in a general education population as yeah. well. Um, so a lot of the times in schools in the past, we really considered their instructional time to be very important. Yeah. and very urgent to be getting them as many academic interventions as we possibly could um, in, as, in the time that we had. 
So it was a very shocking that all of a sudden this was of basically no importance. Yeah. Um, especially considering all the long-term data and metrics we have about how important educational attainment is for basically all the life outcomes for, for, for any person. Yeah. And was it, I mean, were all these problems exacerbated by the fact that the kids you deal with have um, different kinds of disabilities? The issue there, I'd say, is many times more severe because if it's already a struggle to use a computer and then you're relying on the computer for uh, your education, yeah. it creates an enormous barrier. And this was something that um, I had tried to address in when schools were going to stay closed in the fall of 2020, um, I asked if it would be possible for kids with severe disabilities. So these are students who are nonverbal, um, who really rely on, on schools for their daily living needs yeah. um, to at least have class outside in small groups because they already have smaller classes and they have support personnel. Um, so that means you could even divide them into smaller groups. And in California, we could have done school outside year round yeah. uh, because of the weather. Yeah. So, um, and the response back was basically like that would be tantamount to murder and it's not possible, even though at that time there was so much data already that showed that kids were at far, far, far greater risk, like thousand folds less yeah. risk um, than adults for uh, adverse outcomes from a COVID infection. And also that they were much, 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 much less likely to spread and transmit COVID. Yeah. So essentially at that time, we knew that the elderly and immunocompromised were the vulnerable population, that yeah. kids were basically safe. Um, and also that schools that had been open really did not drive transmission in the school and did not drive community transmission. Yeah. But all that information was basically ignored. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm also curious to hear a bit about how... Um, people in your both in your professional and in your personal circles um i suppose just your observation of how people responded to these measures and maybe if you could tell us a bit about the california lockdown itself um just to make sure that all our re um, listeners are on the same page so i mean i know like in my own um in my own kind of um i was fairly surprised for instance how many of um how many academics decided that face-to-face -face teaching could so readily be ditched in favor of going online um, and you know even though obviously it's very different dealing with adults at university compared to dealing with um, students in middle school nonetheless it seemed to me a tremendous amount was lost from in the shift online and so many of uh, so many of my colleagues and so many academics seemed oblivious to the costs of this um, not least in the long run in terms of the way in which we justify education anyway but I mean I guess I'm curious to I'm curious then to hear about how you felt um, teachers responded as a profession both in terms of um, you know immediately and in your the your per, so, social circles and also broad you know more broadly how people around you responded to the lockdown um I, from my experience, I didn't know a lot of teachers who felt the same way I did. I'm sure they're out there, but it was extremely challenging to find them. Yeah. Um, 
I think in the immediate response was a lot of fear, which is very understandable to me. And I, and I understand where that was coming from. Um, but then after that, I would say everyone I spoke to with some very kind of maybe moderate exceptions who could kind of hear me out um, was in support of the school closures and um, also thought it was crazy that in red states or more Republican areas of the state, like Orange County, that it was crazy that they were having kids back at school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that that's reflected in the general area that I'm in as well. So I would say here, there's a lot of public support for um, COVID restrictions in basically any form. Um, Yeah. And so did your, I mean, did you find yourself in conflict? Did you hide your views? Um, and I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't I intend mean, to put you on the spot yeah. <laughs> if it's too difficult to talk about, but I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So it just kind of depends on the situation. I mean, if it's, if I have a friend that I've had for 10 years or something, um, where we've been through all kinds of personal things together, do I really want to confront them? and how hash it out about something that's hopefully a temporary political disagreement, not necessarily. At yeah. the same time, if things come up, sometimes it can be inevitable. Um, and at, in terms of a work context, again, I don't think it would have been appropriate to go to each person one by one and say, here's where I stand and here's exactly what I think. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. But you know, there's context where you're in a meeting or something and it's like, we have to talk about it. And, you know, the truth comes out about where you stand. Um, So. So do you feel like you paid a cost? I mean, like a professional or a personal cost for your views? Um, not as much as you would think, I would say. Okay. Yeah. I suppose perhaps that's a, that's perhaps (laughs) something of a silver lining. Yeah. Not, it's not, it's more, I think, internal, psychologically really difficult. Yeah. Um, I feel like the internal conflict is worse than the outside conflict yeah. um, because the internal conflict, uh, it's not something that I've necessarily really experienced before, the feeling of kind of going against your community, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas how it plays out, in person is slightly less dramatic than sometimes how it feels, I'd say. Yeah. 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 And so you mentioned you campaigned for Bernie in 2019. So has lockdown shifted your political views at all? Not really. I mean, I feel like it's really tempting to say, oh, I agree with the right on this. So I'm on the right. But then I feel like if I have longer conversations with people on the right, it just turns out that we have a fundamentally different set of assumptions going in, even though we've come to the same conclusion. Yeah. Um, and that on a question like education or a question like the teachers union, our kind of long-term vision of a solution would be very different. Yeah. Um, what it has given me is I think uh, growing up in this area and being in this area, a lot of people Um, on the left or liberals are very condescending towards conservatives. So it's given me some like insight into that, that some, that (laughs) 
maybe a little humility <laughs> might be appropriate sometimes here. Sure. Um, but I wouldn't say that I've, I've become a conservative. It's just, I would have to say, I would just take each issue as it comes case by case now. Okay. And um, just going back to the lockdown and you mentioned kind of the experience, the kind of how much, um, how f important fear was um, mm -hmm. when it all began. Um, did you go in being skeptical of the policy or was there a single moment or insight when your views on lockdown kind of crystallized or flipped from one to another? Um, there wasn't a single moment. I When I went in, I wasn't skeptical because my thinking was that if they were closing the schools, it must be really serious yeah. because um, we had gone on strike for seven days. And each of those days, the district was really intense about how much learning kids were missing because yeah. for each single day, yeah. um, as though that was a really big deal. So then I thought, okay, well, now if the district says the schools have to close, it must be because they know that there's a really serious emergency. Yeah. Um, and I took it you know, as seriously as everyone else. Yeah. I think that the first thing... Um, that seemed off to me was like the panic buying that was going on here. I don't know if that happened also. It happened in here the, in the UK. Yeah, too. Yeah. Cause that was basically, I remember being in like a packed supermarket and just thinking this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so that was maybe the first moment in my life that I was looking around and thinking that something was off. Yeah. Um, and then the first kind of piece of information that I found uh, from looking into it that I thought was kind of alerted me that something was wrong was that um, at, at that time, the main source of kind of panic was around the hospitals in it northern Italy. Yeah. And um, what wasn't being presented to people was that there had been a lot of privatization going on for many years and yeah. downsizing of hospitals. And they'd had some bad flu seasons in the past because yeah. of um, the shrinking resources. And I thought that was kind of an essential piece of information to contextualize some of the images and videos yeah, absolutely. Um, that wasn't being presented to the public. So it was, those were kind of the two initial things that created a seed of doubt. Right. And so given, um, given all this, then if you had to explain it, um, and, uh, you know, I mean, um, I suppose I'm partly asking you to summarize um, some of the things that you've written about, how would you explain, how do you understand this kind of um, the um, speed with which lockdown was implemented? And you gave the example of how, you know, how um, bitterly, um, you were opposed um, with respect to the strike and how much the the schools, like you say, the school management, I suppose, um, uh, emphasized the loss of learning during the strike, but then were willing to kind of so casually um, give up on education for um, for kids for months and months. So how do you ex what, how do you explain it? If you can kind of summarize your understanding of what's driving lockdown then in the U.S. in particular. How do I explain uh, like the, the motivation for it, or how do I explain the, those public? Yeah, let's, so yeah, I mean, 
yeah, uh, you you make a good point. So let's start with motivation. How? What's your understanding of the motivation? And then we'll talk about the public attitudes towards it. Um, okay, well, with the motivation, I think there's several factors. Um, there's been a lot of profits made during this time. So I think the global figure for 2020 was like workers lost $3.7 trillion, billionaires gained $3.9 trillion or something like that. I might've got the two numbers mixed, but, um, so a lot of people and specifically billionaires have made a lot of money in terms of the specific uh, actors and planning and agendas. I'm not super great at teasing that all out. And a lot of other people are probably better at explaining that and the timeline of how this all occurred. Yeah. Um, but I would say that there has been a financial motive and that's something that I think has been misinterpreted a lot on the left, um, which from the beginning was saying that uh, if you were opposed to lockdowns, you were pro-capitalist, you were pro-billionaire, and that just hasn't really played out in terms of what actually occurred because yeah. this has been great for the capitalist class. And um, a lot of the industries, even where that suffered, like the airline industry, um, the executives and shareholders made out fine. They yeah. just fired all the workers. So yeah. um, I think that's probably a huge factor to understand in terms of why and how. And I would also just add that before this going into the lockdowns, there were a lot of populist movements happening around the world. And now I wouldn't say they're crushed or anything, but I would say that they have been severely delayed because of an inability to organize. And also because of the financial strain put on the class that largely supported populist movements. Yeah. You've mentioned um, your kind of um, professional peers. You've mentioned the attitude of the left. I wondered maybe if you could elaborate a bit on that, why you think people um, bought into it and as much as people did. And I don't know if you have any contact with um, the parents of the kids you teach, um, or um, if you have, you know, kind of any contact with um, uh, working class people in Oakland, uh, that might be able to give us kind of also that another perspective on um, responses to lockdown. Yeah, so the, okay, I think in terms of the public response, I think it's important to understand there was a lot of propaganda going on at the beginning. And in combination with that, immediately people were isolated. So if you ever want to condition a response in people, the best way to do it is to put them alone somewhere. Could you you maybe, could you give us some examples of what the propaganda was like in Oakland? Well, it's, I think that it was kind of similar for everyone because it was all consumed on TV and it was consumed on the internet. But remember all the graphs and charts, the exponential, uh, (laughs) the exponential curve growth images, I think was a huge part of it. And then the um, videos of people collapsing in Wuhan, um, people being welded into their apartments, these very kind of scary and and striking footage. Um, And right before the lockdown, I think people felt all kinds of different ways about it from the way that uh, we were talking about it. Everyone was all over the place in my experience. And then the moment that we were all in our homes separated, it was like 
instantly everyone was aligned because then most of your time is spent consuming um, media online or on TV. Um, So I think that played a huge role in terms of increasing buy-in. Yeah. Once it started, I think buy-in was pretty immediate. Um, And I think that there was also a lot of trust um, that I didn't even realize existed a huge amount of trust in our expert class um, and in our scientific and medical institutions. Um, And I think that I just think that that trust is misplaced based. I mean, everyone I think has a capacity to do research. Everyone has some capacity to evaluate things. Um, It's not necessarily that only a select few group of people can understand the situation. And the idea that only a select few group of people understand the situation has led to some bad policy outcomes, in in my opinion. Um, But I think that was very ingrained. And even people who I thought did not trust, uh, did not really trust in experts or technocracy really trusted in it yeah. uh, when push came to shove. So, um, and then in terms of more working class um, people, I think it's very mixed. I think it's a little bit more mixed than the professional class. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's not a monolith at all. Yeah. Um, some people would have like the exact same fears and, and uh, perceptions yeah. as people in the professional class. And then some people don't. Um, yeah it really varies more. Um, and did you I have think, any interaction with the parents of the kids you teach? I mean, was yeah. there, did they feel that they were getting screwed over by not having access to regular teaching? Well, okay. So right in the beginning, I did have one, uh, right in the beginning, we were just doing phone calls to parents, yeah. um, to kind of check in cause no one knew what was going on or what to do. And I did have one parent say, um, like that she felt like she had been abandoned by the state. Um, After that initial point, we didn't really talk that much about the general situation. And I also felt that um, a lot of my, a a lot of what's going on in education now, um, teachers feel like a certain level of entitlement to kind of sway kids, parents, and families along whatever political lines they think are important. And I try not to do that. So I wouldn't necessarily want to like invite a conversation about the political situation with the family because I kind of feel like it's not my place. Sure. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned, I wanted to talk a bit more about this misplaced trust that you mentioned in kind of expertise and technocracy. Um, And how do you, I mean, why do you think there are such kind of deep um there was such a deep reservoir of this misplaced trust particularly among prof- the professional classes i don't know i mean i really don't know i do you have any ideas um i mean i suppose i'd say it is it's kind of a political it expresses a certain kind of um political outlook that comes from their uh, social position and background um, mm-hmm. and also kind of aligns with their idea they're professionally kind of um, they're professionally trained and educated and yeah. therefore they feel like um, 
that they trust people who are in a kind of similar uh, similar position. I also think a lot of yeah. it, to be frank, is driven by an anti-democratic instinct um, mm -hmm. about the need for control of um, of those below, and that the way to do that is by kind of putting your faith in these in people who know better, people like us, yeah. who are kind of expert. And this is needed in order to avoid um, avoid kind of tumult and upheaval from the the confused and the ignorant beneath us. Yeah, that makes sense. You think, I mean, that would apply to the context of the U.S. lockdown as well? I think it's just very hard for uh, some people in the professional class to imagine that the that these institutions might betray them because yeah. they've been through their whole lives where these institutions have served them. Yeah. So I think that might also be an additional part of it. So um, I also wanted just to ask you a bit more about the, um, you mentioned so um, the kind of financial interests that have been well served during the lockdown and the financial strain that it's put on so many um, working class people as a result of lockdown. So how do you, um, how do you get from those kinds of interests to the imposition of the lockdown in particular? Because um, I suppose what I'm curious about is how you see the chain of process. So, um, you know, I mean, presumably, I mean, you know, it wasn't like, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I'm assuming there wasn't like a meeting between Bezos and, um, I don't know, Bezos and uh, Bill Gates and, you know, whoever else um, in late 2019, where all the, you know, all the oligarchs and the um, Silicon Valley kind of execs and all that got around the table and decided that we need a lockdown. Um, so how, how do you think it went how did the lockdown emerge as something which served a certain group of people so well? Um, I mean, I, 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 I have to be honest, I don't know. And I feel like it's, it's up for investigation yeah. and it will take a long many years to understand. I think it doesn't necessarily um, have to be a direct conspiracy like i said i think there's other people who are more better at kind of tracing back these in these individual characters yeah. or certain things that happen like pandemic simulations and things yeah. like that um that's not really something i'm super well versed in yeah. but it it doesn't need to be um on that level of detail to imagine a scenario where the there are factors that are making for this class of people the old economic system uh, unsustainable in their mind yeah. and then moving to a different system yeah. or a slightly altered system yeah. um, where people also have very much less rights or yeah. we're in a state of emergency basically all the time yeah. would be more advantageous and um, consciously and explicitly or not consciously and not explicitly that's the direction that we that we move in yeah. and then because there's a sense also in the culture that 
the old model was falling apart or not sustainable, yeah. a lot of people are kind of willing to move in that direction also within various institutions. Yeah. And is that is that what you think is happening where this is the that a new direction of travel has been set as a result of what's happened during the lockdown? Yeah, I think so. I think this is not over. I think that I think that it's going to be a an era of changes um, because what is kind of the normal that we had been talking about going back to for a long time feels to be kind of gone. Um, You can see that in the schools now. Um, So even with schools reopening, you have kids having to do health checks at the door or scan QR codes at the door. So there's a whole apparatus now of biosecurity (laughs) built around these kids that was never there before and that there's no off ramp for. So there's no plan of like when this isn't necessary. Um, So I think that something has changed and we, we going to have to go through it and it won't be the same as it was before once this once it's over yeah no i mean i i think you're right um and the the shape of it i think is um is still quite fuzzy in some respects and probably varies a great deal across countries but there is certainly a new direction of travel i think like you say Mm um just before we, I wanted to move on to um, possible alternatives to lockdown and also um, uh, what could be said perhaps in support of lockdown. But just before then, I wanted just to um, just to tease out, if possible. So we mentioned the kind of the um, part, what might explain the professional classes support for lockdown. But I wonder also what your views are about why the left seem to support lockdown so much. And I know there's an overlap in terms of constituency there, but I wonder if there's any additional factors as to why lockdown seemed so appealing, particularly given, like you say, the way it seems to have served the the interests which the left has opposed itself to for the last few years. I think that I can only speak like to the US left, I think that when the lockdown started, Bernie had basically lost. Yeah. So I think that there was a sort of idea in people's minds that when Bernie won, everything was going to change. And there was a certain motivation for some huge transformation to happen. And I think the idea of a global pandemic kind of appealed to that, that, that sentiment. Yeah. So that might have kind of primed people to go, go along, go along to it with it, and the idea yeah. of some cataclysmic yeah. thing that was going to be an opportunity to reorder society or something was appealing. But um, and then I think on a deeper level, I think that there was just a maybe slight lack of commitment to some of the things that we had been talking about. Yeah. Because um, the central policy of the Bernie campaign was Medicare for all. Yeah. And so it was kind of strange that that was just abandoned like right away. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Almost instantaneously, it became from the U.S. left, like we need to do lockdown yeah. um, and not kind of a discussion about, well, why do some people have adverse health outcomes? 
And why are the, why do poor people have the most adverse health outcomes? Um, that wasn't really a huge kind of part of the discussion. And one thing we had here in the US was hospitals lost like billions of dollars because no one was going and they had to close and a lot of healthcare workers got fired. Yeah. And because people weren't putting claims in for elective procedures or like routine procedures that yeah. all got canceled, insurance companies doubled their profits. Yeah. And there was co total silence from um, the Bernie left that had been spent, you know, the past few years complaining about the private health insurance industry. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's fascinating. And I never... And I guess you'd have to have been in the States to experience the um, the kind of hope that was vested in the Bernie campaign that then was, I suppose, if I'm if I understand what you said correctly, that it was effectively transferred to this new thing, which gave an opportunity for people for that yearning for change could be fulfilled through the response to the pandemic. Yeah, I think I mean, I think so. Um... Do you think I mean, just touching upon this thing you've mentioned before about that it the lockdowns has also served as a way of containing political disruption that has also been kind of increasing across the developed world in the last few years, populist turbulence, and not least um, uh, Donald Trump himself. Do you think that was part of the appeal to the left as well, that it offered a way of kind of um, uh, restraining and controlling kind of potential social turbulence of the kind that was unwanted? I mean, maybe, but only by virtue of their class position, I guess. Yeah. I think in terms of kind of the, how are we going to manage these people? Yeah. <laughs> yes, but not necessarily from their ideological statements, I yeah. guess. But yeah. it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a conflict and overlap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, um, I wanted to push you a bit on lockdown. So, I mean, you you're okay. <laughs> you have a public reputation um, as a lockdown skeptic, and perhaps one of the most, um, like I mentioned, in articulate and impassioned critics of lockdown in the U.S., but also by virtue of your presence on social media globally. So, was there an alternative to lockdown in your view? So, I'd say that the alternative would have been a uh, focused protection measure. So it became clear pretty early, like I mentioned, that um, young people were a thousandfold less at risk yeah. uh, than the elderly and that um, the median age of death was very high, like 82, yeah. um, depending on the location, of course. And so I think um, measures that would have been put in place that would have been useful were focus protection and especially a lot of resources um, given to nursing homes to yeah. prevent too much crossing of staff. Yeah. Um, and we basically saw the opposite here <laughs> where uh, in five states, they sent COVID patients into nursing homes yeah. and a lot of nursing homes fired staff and there was no protection for that vulnerable population while the healthy were being quarantined. Yeah. Another thing is that when people don't really have a risk um, from a virus, it's not really useful to quarantine them if because it's basically 
preventing natural immunity from occurring. And the more natural immunity you can accumulate in the population, then the more you're likely to protect the vulnerable pop, the full, the vulnerable group. So then, and then in addition to that, I would just say common sense things. Like if people are sick, they should stay home. And uh, if people are sick, they should have uh, paid sick leave in order to stay home. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so given all that, I mean, and you mentioned at the start, like um, your initial response was given the fact, you know, and I imagine lots of people thought like this as well. I mean, um, when they started closing schools, well, it must be serious then. Um, Yeah. And this has to be taken very seriously. So was there any, is there any kind of, um, I suppose, context or scenario or moment where you think um, lockdown was merited? I guess the feel I feel like with this question, the problem is that I don't really think that there's evidence across the board that the lockdowns prevented cases from climbing or yeah. prevented deaths. Yeah. So basically, sometimes in this conversation, it's presumed that if you don't support the idea of a lockdown, that means you want people to die and suffer. Yeah. But it's just that it's it's not effective. It, it, the question is, is, does it work? Is it effective? And so I would say in the absence of empirical evidence that it's effective across the board, not yeah. like an island nation closing its borders, but yeah. as a policy for every country across the board to work, then I don't think I could really endorse it. And then the other thing I would add is that really what lockdown did was it allowed rich people to stay home and have poor people and essential workers deliver things to them. So therefore you're still having transmission. You're just putting the brunt of that transmission on the lower income population in order to protect the professional class and the wealthy. So I wouldn't really endorse some, that kind of thing where you're essentially moving risk around either. So one, I suppose, um, this debate, and I don't know how useful it is. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe you don't think it's useful, but oftentimes this debate and goes in this direction. So, I mean, we'll, we'll pursue it at least. And, um, you know, uh, cause I'm curious to hear your response, but it often becomes kind of a comparison of different countries responses. Um, you know, Sweden versus Japan versus Britain versus Italy versus the U S and then obviously there's the breakdown in the U S between, um, different state level responses within the U S um, and so I just wondered if there was any kind of um, if there was any responses elsewhere, which you think were, um, you know, kind of an example, perhaps of a better of a better response. And um, and if there are any kind of policies you think that might have been useful, I don't know, say, like closing borders or um, uh, anything like that, or if there is a kind of um, or maybe even examples within the states where you think one state handled it better than another state. Um, it's difficult because there's so many different variables for each country. Yeah. And, um, it's difficult because a lot of the times there will be referred to in the U S media countries that did hard lockdowns, but it's not really a hard lockdown. I mean, this, if like the schools and the businesses were open, it's just that they closed the borders. So it's, it's a little bit difficult to say, I think right now, um, in Sweden, they have had zero um, 
a seven day average of zero deaths for yeah. a little while now. Yeah. And, and they I should just no- say for our listeners that re- this is recorded on the 18th of August. Yeah. And they have no mask mandate, um, no vaccine mandate, no lockdown. Yeah. And so I think what they have is herd immunity. And the problem, though, with Sweden was that they didn't really protect the um, long term care homes in the beginning. Yeah. Um, so I would say if you could have a response like that and protect the elderly in the beginning, then that would have been the ideal. Yeah. So, um, I suppose it's, uh, time in the conversation to look to the future. Um, you've mentioned your view that you think a lot of these policies are being locked in and that we're getting, um, a kind of a biosecurity state developing, um, and more of a um, rule through emergency is perhaps becoming normalized as a result of the pandemic. So I wondered, what do you think the chances are for um, public opposition to lock to these policies becoming normalized? Um, and if you think another lockdown um, is in our future or in your future, I suppose, specifically in the States. So I think it's going to be state by state and country by country. And it's going to be similar to the first lockdown, where for whatever reason, there was almost a very similar playbook being implemented in each place um, with different language or like different color schemes. Um, But I think that everywhere you're going to going to see efforts along the same lines and it's going to depend on certain local factors that might be almost accidental or idiosyncratic to the area. Um, So one thing here in California that happened was in LA, um, they ordered a mask mandate and the sheriff's office said that they wouldn't enforce. So something like that, that has a lot of different reasons behind it that the police or law enforcement are not aligned with the political decision makers can have a really big impact on then what ends up happening right if there's no enforcement arm whereas in australia obviously the police are aligned (laughs) with the political decision and they're enforcing the lockdown in a physical manner so um i think that it will depend Uh, case by case and it's almost hard to predict so in california right now um newsom is up for recall and that can have a big difference even if it's just really close yeah um and he's still he's still the governor that could also make a difference um not just for us in california but as a message to other politicians as well so it's kind of how what have his policies been just um for the benefit of our listeners oh well um We had um, school closures in California, pretty much the longest out of every state. So um, by the time schools opened here, most states had very low levels of online learning, if any at all. We were one of, if not the last holdouts. Um, We had a mask mandate for a long time and um, a stay home order for a long time. Um, And it was depending on the region. San Francisco had the first stay home order in the country. Um, So there's in California, 
There are some Republican areas that are very much unhappy with Newsom. And there's also disaffected Democrats or independents who are also really unhappy. A lot of it is because of the schools, I would, I think. And it's also some of it, some of his personal behavior, because he infamously went to this restaurant called the French Laundry in Napa, um, where the uh, dinner can be like $850 per person. Yeah. And he met there with lobbyists from the entertainment industry. Right. <laughs> and this was during a time when people were not supposed to be going out for dinner. <laughs> yeah. um, everyone was in lockdown. In most places, people were in stay home orders still. And he um, then after that, the entertainment industry was given permits to continue operating. <laughs> while small businesses were still closed. He also had his kids in private school, in person, private school, um, which was, yeah. And he recently had his kid um, in a mat, in a camp, a summer camp that didn't have a mask requirement, even though most places have, most camps have mask are supposed to have mask requirements, things like that. So some of the kind of hypocrisy has left people with a, a bad feeling sure. <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons yeah. um so that's why the recall's happening that's interesting and it, it sound i mean it seems like it's a pattern that repeats i mean there's constant stories um and even visible i mean here in the uk when you had the the g7 meeting um the kind of the bonhomie and the kind of very the close socializing and all of that it very clearly sent that was photographed and was you know kind of evident in the media it sent very clear signals of one rule one rule yeah. for certain kinds of people and one rule for another. Yeah, definitely. And it also shows a little bit of an extent that they're not super worried for themselves. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned um, how you think the kind of, if there's internal kind of disagreement within the state about, um, or with different, different um, uh, kind of different uh, places within the state apparatus about, um, the wisdom of um, new lockdowns or enforcing lockdowns. Is there anything else which you think might um, drive public opposition or skepticism to yeah. the new biosecurity state? So one thing that we have here in the U.S. Um, is cities slowly implementing uh, vaccine passport sim- systems. Yeah. So New York just started. Um, San Francisco is starting. L.A. is thinking about it and this is to what does this allow you to access in these cases restaurants gyms um entertainment venues yeah and large public events large events um bars so in la i think city council voted to do it but they don't have a plan yet um so at the same time we had the mayor of boston saying that she was not in favor of these systems because it was a form of Jim Crow law. And so I think we have a really interesting dynamic happening here where if you look at the um, population of who is fully vaccinated and who is not in a lot of major cities, uh, African-Americans have lower rates um, of vaccination. And just in general, it breaks down in every single group along class lines because of um, this issue when New York implemented its vaccine passport system, 
it would have effective, it would effectively mean maybe two thirds of the city's African-American and black population wouldn't be able to go to restaurants. Yeah. So I think that this has put liberals in a difficult position (laughs) Um, and created maybe some doubt that this is really where they want to go or where they want to push it. Um, And I think it's, that's kind of what I mean, where it's almost going to be random elements of a region's history that might skew things a certain way. So it could end up that over time, after many rounds of trying to implement vaccine passports, like like they get it to work in New York, or it could end up that people realize this is a racist policy in in practice, and we don't want to do this. Um, It will really depend. And that's going to be informed by specific history like Jim Crow and also the Tuskegee experiment and the kind of legacy of the relationship between the African-American community and the medical establishment that you wouldn't necessarily would you wouldn't necessarily um, be able to predict would have a huge impact on our fate. But maybe it will. Yeah, that's really interesting. And not something I have to confess something I I didn't really think of it, um, those kinds of contradictions, how they might play out. Um, Is there anything that we've not talked about that you think is important to mention? I think it's just important to mention that I kind of referred to this before, but I just want to reiterate that if anyone who I feel I just would ask that for um, those who support lockdowns, or vaccine passes, or uh, any of these policies, um, I just want to reiterate that the opposition to them is not driven by some sort of death drive, which is often what's characterized in the US media, or by some sort of primal evil (laughs) that just wants uh, death and destruction, but is actually based on like a disagreement about the data and a disagreement on the implications of the data. Um, So I would just want to emphasize that point because I feel like the discourse here is just getting it has always been very intense and it's continuing to intensify and intensify and the level of division that's being sown um, is kind of disturbing Um, it's very dehumanizing the way that people are talking about each other um, and there's a lot of blaming um, and I would just say that it's it's not uh it's it's not the fault of individual people if these policies don't work the policies are supposed to serve the people we're not like so you know so i feel like the scapegoating and the blaming is very destructive to the social fabric of the country and i would just hope it's okay to disagree on the lockdown um, and on all these issues, but it doesn't have to be uh, taken to a level where people are called plague rats and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's been um, fabulous. Um, I'm delighted we had the chance to talk and thank you so much for taking the time and for joining us. Yeah, thank you so, so much for having me. All right, and we're back. Phil. Well, I had a wonderful chat with Alex, um, and I'm uh, curious to know what you guys made of it. Well, yeah, one of the best Alexes that we've had on the podcast. I mean, 
there are dozens be, of us. Let's be generous. Dozens. Maybe the best Alex. Maybe the best Alex we've had on the podcast. Yeah. No, I thought it was um, it was a very a, a really interesting discussion and and remarkable for it. For I think she was very calm and very clear and systematic in presenting her arguments. And I think there's you know when she was talking about some of the um, I guess social isolation or the 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 professional context in which she was working many people probably you know supporting either mildly or, or in some cases probably quite strongly lockdowns um, and many kind of previous political allies doing the same um, I think that you know to be able to continue to to, to put your case forward very systematically and, and calmly is 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 very impressive because I think the um it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's an emotive skill to the extent that people <laughs> yeah. are like, yeah, I mean, I can't keep my, my calm like that. If I'm, if I'm, you know, she said she was called a, a plague rat or, or, or um, in, in implied that, and, you know, to be able to continue to put forward the, the kind of the distinctions and the, the arguments, I mean, that's, that's, um, that's, you know, very impressive. What about you, Alex? Alex, oh, I thought it was very, Alex, I thought Alex. it was very good. And I, and I like the, I mean, I like hearing from her experience of being a teacher and, and uh, you know, kind of what a disaster that was. Um, and I mean, it's something which often has been some of the kind of kind of spiciest kind of confrontations over lockdown because it involves children. Of course, people very feel very sensitive about that and feel like they pit children. People need to be care protected. about children often. People often do care about children, but also, that the sense that they need to be protected, but that of course that runs con- counter to all the information that we have, but also the teachers unions, which many, uh, you know, as she even said, um, many didn't want classes resumed because they, because I mean, obviously teachers are at risk, much more at risk than, than children are. Um, but, you know, unless they're elderly, maybe not so much, but of course, again, it presents a challenge, especially for people on the left to kind of go, let's not listen to the union's interest in protecting their members. I mean, that's a, the point being is that that's a difficult argument to have, but she presented it very kind of calmly and clearly, and uh, I thought was very convincing yeah. in that. And perhaps, I mean, and perhaps more convincing than I myself have been, because I was so outraged, I mean, by the dereliction of the unions, the teachers' unions, my own union, I mean, so I mean, I include my own union, the academics' union here in the UK, would it seem to me the retreat from any kind of sense of professional or public ethos, which is supposed to be built into... Um, you know, the profession as an education. And I wasn't averse to the idea, you know, that obviously those who are vulnerable or elderly didn't, you know, shouldn't have been forced to do to do face-to-face teaching. Though I did like and the I little bit... all sorts of ways. Oh, sorry. No, I, just, I, I did think that I liked the bit where she commented about how they've been on strike for 10 for seven days and yeah. the the city government was like outraged like you cannot miss one single day of teaching this will destroy yeah. the kids lives and then of course the government completely is okay with months and months of, uh, of Indeed, no school but yeah but now but the unions can't hold that against the government right no they so, can't i mean they should be able to those... use that in the future if the government turns against them when they yeah, go but on they strike can't. well but how can they they should have been but given their commitment to lockdown they can't right and we're in the same position here how can my union legitimize any kind of industrial action in future, given that both they and the employers showed themselves so willing to fritter away um, the interests of students, whereas before we could, you know, legitimately strike and claim that it's on behalf of the academic community, including students, despite the fact of damaging their immediate interests in terms of lessons lost, but that it would be better in the long run. And now that's a much more difficult argument to make. And we've, you know, they've compromised themselves fully. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, I that's... agree. I was impressed by Alex's tremendous kind of calm. 
It is worth um, just reiterating her point about the, particularly with reference to education, like the class differences that you have some in, in face public schools, and then you have a complete and utter lack of like any plausible plan for remote learning such that essentially, you know, working class kids do not get the hours of instruction that they need and any educational inequalities are massively exacerbated, which then leads to, you know, a whole, a whole range of other things, um, a whole range of other inequalities being exacerbated. And this is like, you know, in, in the UK, for example, this is another example of, of the state being completely unable to deal with, with, with COVID. It's like there was no consistent plan at all um, for, for like making up any kind of lost learning. And then you hear that like exam results have got better again. And it's like, how is this possible? The amount of time that these students have lost over the course of the year, they cannot possibly be doing better. Obviously it's unfair on those students who've been out of school, but to, to give them higher grades for this is like, well, that's that's not solving the problem. That's just showing that, you know, the only response to this inability to educate is to basically buy off the students who've been disadvantaged. So, you know, I think that's something which yeah, is, you know, point. very much a case here as well. One element, I guess, which strikes me thinking back now to the discussion is the fact that the, she says, you know, so the, um, the inability to provide internet education to in the public schools to the working class kids was ended when the Silicon Valley tech hubs and the oligarchs yeah. basically stepped in to kind of um, prop up the public schools. And I thought that was fascinating and maybe something we could have talked a bit more about because, um, you know, it's uh, certainly provided a way for a certain ed tech vision, you know, it's helped to legitimate and lay the ground for a new generation of ed tech for sure. And it also clearly has helped to, um, you know, legitimize the Silicon Valley oligarchy, given the fact that they've enriched themselves so much, the fact that they can point to their efforts in helping poor kids kind of get some remedial online education in the context of the pandemic also yeah. looks pretty and good and is quite, seems to me quite canny and instrumental. It's going to come back to bite teachers in the arse Absolutely. really, really massively because it's just saying, well, do you need good tech or do you need teachers to deliver uh, education through the living through their living labour? Well, if you need the only the first, then that massively weakens your position as a as a as a profession. So, yeah. I mean, I just think it's the long term consequences, particularly for teaching, um, are going to be really just just disastrous. And it's so worth noting that she said it was more. On. Oh yeah, I was just going to say one last point on the education. Is that it's, it was interesting to hear. You know, it's more labor intensive uh, teaching remotely actually than than teaching yes. in person. Which I think many people who don't know what teaching is like, or many of the idiots who are trying to move things all online, uh, also don't appreciate or deliberately ignore. So, I mean, I agreed with most of what Alex said, and you know, if not indeed all of it, I think there were three elements. I think which were new to me completely and i just wanted to briefly um, touch upon them um and i think this is only something you could get from having been in the states so she mentioned the fact that the great kind of yearning for change that um was vested in the bernie campaign had to be transferred somewhere once the bernie once bernie was clearly defeated in early 2020 and how this was basically placed onto the um you know placed into the idea of lockdown and a um you know the role of kind of appropriate um 
socially responsible behavior. So that, I think, was an interesting account of the left's buy into lockdown um, that it wouldn't have occurred to me without having been involved or close, at least, to the Bernie campaign. The second thing which I thought was also interesting was the way in which you've, you know, kind of laid out the, and this again is, I think, very real. And I, uh, you know, she says how the, insofar as there is an attempt to introduce a new kind of, um, a new economic and social organization in the wake of the pandemic, it speaks to the fact that rich, the wealthy, the powerful, the oligarchy, ruling elites, the ruling class, in 2019 were very clear that things were crumbling they had a very clear and sharp sense yeah. that things were falling apart and that they needed something to kind of put you know keep the show on the road and so that there was you know that the opportunity of the pandemic um or the pandemic offered an opportunity for them to do that um and to find new ways to organize and legitimize um the way in which they you know kind of exercise their control in society and i think there was very nuanced and insightful account of how certain kinds of interests managed to exert themselves in the context of the pandemic and the lockdown i think on that second point the like i think that's absolutely crucial that the like how did lockdown emerge as something that served a group of people so well is a difficult question, but you, I don't think you can really answer it without seeing that there was a really like the old model was, was falling apart in terms of like a legitimation crisis, if you want to put it that way. And so what do you need in order to, to sidestep that or to, to keep, yeah, to, de to buy time, to delay collapse? Well, one thing is a, is a, is a reorganization of society on, eat uh, temporarily quote unquote temporarily on on new lines and i think that's that's something which in i guess the some of the analyses that i've you know personally tried to make of of the pandemic i think have probably like underplayed that because it is a political failure um lockdowns as a as a response on the one hand but on the other hand it's it's for for one group it's really not the ruling class is mm. is in has materially benefited and has also been able to 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 reform certain parts of society. Um, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's has, even. I'm not sure the ruling. You know, direct. I mean, politicians. A lot of politicians seem damaged by it, but certainly the oligarchs. I don't think they've not been damaged by it. No, and I mean, I don't. Obviously, it's important to say. I think that it's not a plot, and I'm not even sure it's self-conscious on the part of the the political or economic elite. No, that, Alex that, was very good at that. She said, yeah. I mean, she didn't, you know, she didn't say that. And you don't need to say that in order to draw this point out, I think. I mean, I remember an Economist editorial from December 2019, where they said, you know, the world is in revolt. They said there were strikes in Haiti, there were strikes in Pakistan, there was, in you know, turbulence in Chile, it was Brexit in Britain, you know, kind of what was going to happen in the American election, was Donald Trump going to step down? It was all so confusing and difficult and politically turbulent. And then a few months later, the world kind of sequentially goes into lockdown across the globe. And that seems, you know, the, the coincidence of those two things or the juxtaposition of those two things, all this kind of populist turbulence and then this enormous project of um, asserting ruling through emergency and state um, through asserting state control and power on the grounds of biosecurity. Those two things seem to me connected and they need to be thought of together. Yeah, it's a demobilization, literally. We've talked about this before. Like this, this is one of the like the most important aspects of, of lockdowns or of the response to COVID in general is that 
it is it is like literally a disaggregation of people and or some some classes of people uh, or and a massive pressure on the classes who might have tended to support populism so it's a real like yeah you don't want to be conspiratorial about it but there's a you know there is a, a, a i was going to say a synergy you can see a, a powerpoint slide deck with with like venn diagrams and overlapping animations um and it's you know it's 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 what um the gilets jaunes it's what you know it's it it's a good way to demobilize people to make certain forms of congregating in groups um illegal so i mean just as to fill uh, the first point that phil highlighted earlier about the way that the left parlayed its hopes in bernie into support for lockdown i mean it kind of there's obviously a certain logic there insofar as the the cause of medicare for all is to demand that the state take responsibility and that health not be treated as a private matter, but a public matter. And that's what the lockdown seems to do. And so I think that's, you know, it's not completely crazy and it's not just the left being completely um, not initially idiotic, but I think once it becomes clear (laughs) what the lockdowns actually imply, then, then you can see how damaging it is in terms of just supporting the, uh, you know, cracking down on civil liberties and so on, and especially once vaccines come in and the the, the yeah. vulnerable are protected. But I mean, it, I, yeah, it, it is it is kind of, um, it. I think the point that needs to be made, and I think we've tried to make ab- about this, is that lockdowns are kind of a product of failure, a pr- product of the fact that states didn't have a plan or didn't stick to the plans that they had, didn't have the state capacity to respond to things in, a, in, a, in an imaginative and capacious manner, uh, and therefore, like kind of depend on lockdowns. And so lockdowns isn't the state taking responsibility. In many ways, it's kind of the state not taking responsibility and uh, just using a sledgehammer effectively yeah, lockdown, to, to crack a nut. Lockdown is both a result of austerity and also a rationale for austerity. Yeah, absolutely. No, but I, I mean, I think this is the point that came through in the discussion that I would make is that it's not just like that political failure is like that is an important thing to say but also it's a transferring of risk from some parts of society to another it's not a like it's not a load of idiots doing this it's people who like who's who serve their own interests and their own like their own class position and that's i think the like it is important to to make that class-based analysis non-conspiratorially and say look people have benefited some people have 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 suffered and there is it's class is the thing which which um, explains this and so as much as it's a political failure and an example of the, the state failing it's also there's you know it's um you know classes is important as always and i mean as much as this isn't a plot obviously uh the elites have learned from this and i mean i just to say one thing just to close this off i saw one of these terrible dystopian world economic forum videos where they talk about the way the world will be in you know 10 20 years and it's all about your you know parents will be educating their kids at home part of the time they won't be going to school so they'll be busy supervising them people won't go to work and won't have sociability you won't need to have restaurants anymore because food will just be brought to you oh finally you're released from the burden of having to go to restaurants uh all of this seemed to me like just to capture how the lock basically capture the lockdown experience for the professional middle classes and how that might be seen as a positive vision of society and sociability when it's very much the opposite of that. Um, so again, for all that it might not have been applauded, there will be learnings from this and uh, we have to make sure that we take the right lessons from it and not those crazy ones that try to rip apart already frayed social bonds. 
Okay, that's it from us for now. Uh, we will be back with a lot more on this. We'll be talking to the author of a, an important book coming out on uh, on the lockdowns uh, in a month or two's time. Um, but that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>